Hi everyone, welcome to the Brown History Podcast. My name is Essen and you are listening to episode 28. Our guest today is award-winning Sri Lankan Tamil novelist Anuk Arud Pragasam. He's written two beautiful novels. The first one is called The Story of a Brief Marriage. And the second one, which was shortlisted for this year's Booker Prize, which is a big deal, is called A Passage North. I had a pleasure talking to him. It's a great episode. I'm really excited for you guys to listen to this one. I highly, highly recommend you check out his two novels. They're beautiful pieces of work. Before we start, I just want to mention, if you want to support Brown History and the Brown History Podcast, and you want more of this, and you want this to grow and be whatever it can be, then consider being a patron. All you gotta do is just go to brownerstreetpodcast.com and just sign up and that's it so yeah i think that's enough introduction for now so let's get moving and start this episode here we go are we are we have we started the podcast you just... yeah yeah <laughs> we yeah. move we move into it casually okay wait but tell me uh what time is it where you are in it's uh, seven in the morning and you usually do podcasts at this time you, you know my all my guests are all around the world, so I have to I have to suck it up and just do it. You know, like I can't. Okay. It's part of the hustle. It's Thank fine. You for, for no, no worries. I mean, this is an opportunity of a lifetime. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna sleep in. <laughs> um, and you've been doing the podcast for a long time. I've been doing it for I think a year now. I think you're my 28th guest. Ah, oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, it's just for fun. Um, it's but it's you fun. have a lot of you have a lot of listeners. It seems. I don't know about that. I mean, what is a lot? Right. It's I don't know what the podcast game is like out there. So Yeah. I get this. I guess there's Joe Rogan. Yeah, I mean there's no way I'm communing with that, you know. And there's a very niche crowd here, niche audience who yeah. read who would care about this stuff. So yeah. it's nice for me to talk to people who are a lot smarter than me and more out there and I get to learn a lot myself. You know, so it's more of a selfish thing than it is anything else. Right, right. No, but it seems, yeah, it does seem, it does seem very fun to do a podcast like this. It's very intimidating, and the, the, you know. Intimidating. Yeah, because I'm gonna, I'm about to talk to someone who's like, you know, who's done some great things, and it's kind of like, okay, who am I to, you know, I'm not a historian. I have nothing. I've never been to Sri Lanka, uh, and here I am talking to, you know, the short, <laughs> the guy who got shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize. It's um. Yeah, it's strange that you, I mean, it's not strange, it's strange, it's it's new to me that you put it this way, I guess, I don't know if, um, uh, but um, yeah, I don't know, no, I don't, yeah, I don't know, I don't think that's true, I don't, I, I don't know, I think all you need to do to have a conversation is to be intelligent and open. Right? Yeah, it's, yeah, that's if it's a private conversation, but right now there's like, ah, you know, a lot of people listening in and I don't want them to be like, who's this idiot asking these stupid questions. Right, but you think no, but I mean the people who listen to you are probably like people who know about you or who have listened to your podcast before, right? Yeah, but I don't know what they think. It's not like they they write their comments and their opinions in. It's you know, on Instagram I post something, I'll know right away if they like it or not, and I'll, I'll know. But with a podcast, they listen to it and then they move on to the next thing. So I have no idea if I'm if I'm doing a good job. So or not. you don't have anybody who gives you like feedback. Yeah, but like you know, there's always gonna be nice people out there who say nice things but i really want like the like you know the someone who's very neutral and very blunt and be like hey you're doing this good but you're doing this bad okay well if i can think of anything to criticize you with afterwards i'll sure sure if you don't mind yeah (laughs) but enough about me let's talk about you you know what's it like being shortlisted for for such a prestigious award i mean i'm sure you have a lot more emails to answer now yeah um what's it like being shortlisted it's complicated there's a lot of uh i mean it's not you know i try not to um i try to have an independent sense of whether what i write is is good or not and uh, to me a mark of having like uh, an independent sense of value is that that when somebody praises you uh you'd be no you'd be no more uh joyed than when then you would be uh, uh sad when somebody criticizes you it's a mark for me of some kind of independence in how i uh see how i how i write and how i judge writing that there are people obviously i trust and whose opinions i care about but i try not to let um people from outside the outside that sphere uh, have have a strong impact on what i think and so like i think this is just my attitude in general so i think with uh, any kind of prize uh, or any kind of recognition 
it's nice. It's very obviously at some level. It's always nice to be congratulated or to be praised. Yeah. But on the other hand, um, yeah, on the other hand, I, yeah, I don't know. For me, the achievement uh, was in writing the book. And that was something I did over five years and I finished uh, two years ago. And and I was pleased with myself and I felt uh, proud of myself for what I did. And so nothing that comes afterwards because I spent a lot of time with that book. I knew I, I, I with this book. Um, yeah. I, I I knew. I mean, I know it inside out. I can like quote entire pages. I've uh, I've lived in it for so long. So at that point, uh, uh, at the point of finishing it, nothing that other people say should 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 make me happier or sadder, yeah. or make me feel like I've achieved more. I haven't achieved more in virtue of. Uh, some external body in a foreign country recognizing me than I than I did when I finished my novel and submitted it. I I really enjoy reading books. I really enjoyed reading your book, both of them. And for me, I, doing this podcast, I get the experience of reading the book and then talking to the author. But in this case, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like I'm not only am I talking to the author of the book, but I feel like I'm talking to the main character of the book because there's... <laughs> And to me, that's like next level because I feel like there's a lot of similarities between you and the main character, Krishan. Is that, am I right on saying that? Because because um, I'm looking at your Instagram and I see that you're taking both the same train rides. You're both mm-hmm. close to your grandmother. You're both from, mm-hmm. the, from the diaspora. I think you both visited the north of Sri Lanka. Well, it, it's actually not true that I'm... Actually, I'm, I'm... Well, Krishan is not part of the diaspora, I guess, in the sense that he's... In the sense he's, that he's... From he's Sri Lanka, abroad, yeah. but he, yeah, but he wasn't, uh, yeah, I guess, but he's also not part of the, the scene of the war, right? Yeah, and actually, Outside that's a very, it. yeah, it's a very nice way, actually. Um, no, I understand what you mean, and it's a very nice way, actually, of understanding, uh, what diaspora means because, traditionally or conventionally, when we say diaspora of a people, we are referring to, um that that part of the community which uh, no longer lives in the um, recognized homeland of the community that that live outside in some way and in that sense i'm i i'm not really diaspora because i i grew up in sri lanka and my family all lived there and i uh, spent a lot of time there um, and i'm certainly not um, like politically barred from from re-entering the country or anything like that like which is the case for a lot of the tamil yeah. diaspora um but on the other hand uh yeah we tend to think of diaspora in terms of a relationship to land but uh, if we are thinking of it or if we want to think of it in terms of relationship to experience and so for example if we think of the war and specifically the last two years the the civil war in sri lanka and the genocide that took place in 2008 and 2009 as an experience and in fact as an experience that is so um so like overwhelmingly definitive of our community it shaped psychologically and politically every member of our community whether we experienced it or not um, if we if we if we think of actually our community as being defined by that experience then in a sense um, we can also define diaspora as uh, those people not who weren't part of the land or who didn't who don't have a relationship to land but people who were not immediately present uh, at that time people who heard about that experience secondhand or through other media and in that sense which i think is an important sense of diaspora i am i am diaspora and i've been diaspora all my life because yeah. I, I've, I've grown up outside this like constitutive part uh so i'm actually even yeah i'm closer to krishan in this respect uh but you know i the reason i write fiction rather than not fiction is because in fiction um uh there is always or there um, should be a kind of separation between the author and the narrator, right? Um, even if the writer is writing in first person, even the text is in first person, uh, we know that we should not. And so even if you make an inference, we know that we, we should be careful about, ma- careful about making inferences from, from the nature of the narrator to the nature of the, to the author. And I like that distance. I like the fact that... Um, uh, one one would feel caution about inferring from the 
from the the, the the eye of the text to the eye of the author, which is not the case with nonfiction. If I was writing nonfiction, then anything I say in the text, you should be able to attribute it to me. And it's not to say that there isn't a relationship. As you say, there's, there's, there's many parallels. And, but I would say that, but I would say that's true for, I guess, any fictional text I write. I mean, one writes, one writes out of uh, experience, right? Right. Well, I mean, the first book was, you know, it was very violent. It's right in the middle of the war. Yeah. It's totally different from the second yeah. book. And you're, yeah. you weren't, as you said, you weren't part of that experience. And yet you must have really taken yourself out of it and kind of imagine what it would be like in that situation. That's true. Yeah, that is true. That is true, although um, what I have experienced as a person, my own personal history, even though it's radically different from the kind of situation that my first book's protagonist, Dinesh, was in, um, I, I, I wrote that text in such a way. There are different ways I could have written a text like that. One can write uh, a text like that, and like my first novel. And I approached it in a way in which um, my ignorance wasn't salient. You know, for example, the, the the main character of the novel is he spends a lot of time with himself and he spends a lot of time with his body, uh, washing it, cleaning it, feeding it, um, emptying it, um, trying to be in contact with another body. And um, so, for example, when I was trying to figure out uh, how to write that novel, uh, or how to approach this situation that I have no immediate experience in, I immediately, um, I immediately thought of what me and that main character had in, had in common, which was a body and uh, a relationship to the body. And so I, so I chose to approach that entire novel through a kind of prism that actually one of the few um, things I shared with, with the character. So in that sense, that book is also um, from experience. True. True, because he does focus on on the day to day, on the little things. We were talking. We were talking about how in the book um, we we're talking about diaspora and how what it means to be a diaspora. Um, you know, but for most diaspora communities, it, you're right. It would, the definition would be more related to geography. But I feel the the Tamil diaspora around the world is really marked by experience and not defined by geography. No, I, yeah, I think yeah, I think that's true. I mean, to some degree, it can be said of. Uh, any diasporic community but like um yeah also because we're so we're such a small community i mean even between between the island and the diaspora there are maybe three three and a half four million people and almost half of that community lives abroad and it's different from uh uh from say from say the diasporic populations of large uh, uh of, of 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 indian communities or pakistani communities uh where generally there's always a there's always a huge population back home that uh, culturally uh, anchors uh, the diasporic population. It's not the sense. It's not the same thing among the Sri Lankan Tamil population because the center of gravity is is a lot more dispersed. It, it has a lot of a lot of different locations. One of them here in 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 Paris actually. There's a lot of Tamil people here. Let's talk about where you grew up. What was your uh, upbringing like? Well, I grew up in Colombo, in, in the south, the uh, capital of the country. Um, my mother's from uh, a village in the north, in Jaffna. And uh, my father's also originally from the same village. But uh, he grew up in a, in, a, in a small town outside Colombo because of his father's work. Uh, so I grew up in what I would call uh, I, in the dominant caste community. And in virtue of that, I was, uh, I guess what you'd call middle or upper middle class. But at some point we, uh, over the course of my childhood, we, we, we moved from that to what would be called the new rich. And so I went to, a, I went to most of my education in Colombo was in an English school, in an international school. And it was among the, uh, yeah, it was among the newly wealthy, I would say, uh, people with a lot of money and uh, very little access to, access is not the right word, but very little interest in, uh, in, in culture or in history uh, or in or in art and um, yeah I don't know it was uh, it was Colombo during the war which means there was not a lot of movement uh, did you feel the effects of mm-hmm. the war yeah I mean of course I mean there was security everywhere there were 
every 100 200 meters there were uh, military checkpoints and uh, my my mother didn't like me leaving the house alone or especially in the evenings or at night because you'd be stopped and if you were tamil they'd check your id and they'd ask you unnecessary questions and it could lead to trouble and you had to be careful so i spent a lot of time uh, on my own at home and i think that was how i uh started reading in my in my in my teens just kind of also partly as a response to uh not being able to move around so freely in colombo during that time and how did you get into writing uh in a kind of roundabout way i i didn't really read that much very much uh as a adolescent or as an early teen but i think around the age of 15 or 16 actually a funny story i i watched a uh, film called alexander i don't know if, i don't know if you see is this with uh, colin farrell yeah yeah so it's with um, colin An- farrell angelina and, jolie um, yeah angelina jolie is alexander's mother um jared leto as alexander's lover it's yeah. really got a star-studded cast and um anthony hopkins as aristotle alexander's teacher and i guess i was a young boy and i was very much fascinated by these themes of uh, of manliness and uh, the search for glory and the idea of uh, having a place in history but i was also a fairly um, i was a very slender boy and uh, not very physically uh, assertive i was i was quite short until like relatively like late in my teens when i shot up but I think these physical factors maybe contributed to a sense that um I wasn't cut out to be an Alexander and so mm-hmm. the next uh, the next uh, the next most obvious kind of like mark of greatness in that film. it was a very bad film I watched it <laughs> it was it was it's a really bad film and uh, the next the next most obvious kind of role model and a slightly more plausible one for me um was was Anthony Hopkins as Aristotle So I so I must have been 14 or 15 so there's a bookshop in Colombo close to where I live and they stocked a lot of um uh, a lot of penguin classics and they had a little philosophy section so the next time I was there I saw the philosophy section and I saw Aristotle and I and I got a number of I got a bunch of other books maybe five or six uh, philosophy books um uh, Descartes Wittgenstein uh Plato and I took them home and I tried to read them and I must have read I wouldn't have read them all I would have tried to read them all and I would have read I would have finished one or two and I probably would not have understood like a great deal but this was what really started me uh uh in reading this interest in philosophy and this interest that like this idea that philosophy through philosophy I could somehow transcend um, everydayness if yeah. that makes sense Yeah 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 Do you and then you went into philosophy and you became you went you you pursued it academically. Yeah, and then I studied philosophy. Um I went to uh I studied in the US for my undergraduate and uh, and I did philosophy and then I and then I um I went on to do a PhD too in the subject. But by the time I had, you know, I was starting my PhD, I decided I would like to be a writer and not a philosopher because by that time I understood that philosophy as it was done in the past in greece or in in rome in the western tradition um was very different from how people do philosophy in american universities or english universities it's very much an academic uh, or a scholarly discipline now it's uh, not given to to grand claims or to um kind of like bold assertions it's it's very modest it's very technical it's very logical and rigorous and there was no room to i felt there was no room to like really think about um questions of life and that was something i thought i could do in writing and so that was it was like after i had really immersed myself into philosophy really that i began to think of writing as something that could i could express myself intellectually uh, uh a lot a lot more uh, fruitfully through what what was your you know most of philosophy all the books all the great books are all by you know white people and europeans mm-hmm. and americans what was your relationship with what was it like for you to enter a world of of you know white men coming from from your culture and your background and being a person of color well um a couple of things first of all i i i 
I, I guess, I, I mean, when I was young, I didn't think of myself as a person of color. Person of color is an American category, right? Or North American category. I thought of myself as Tamil. Um, I mean, of course, in our country, I mean, there are all sorts of hierarchies uh, in our part of the world that have nothing to do. I mean, they might have a little to do with color, but they run, they run much more along the lines of race and of caste and of, uh, of, of religion. And so I, I saw myself, I identified myself racially first and foremost. So as, okay. a, as a Tamil, as a Tamil person, but I also, I think when you're young, you don't tend to think about these things, obviously. So uh, everything, uh, everything is, um, I don't know. I mean, when I was young, I, I remember trying to read Plato and all these books. I had a similar phase and I was like, I don't know, 13, 14 in the library. Mm. And obviously I didn't know what, what was going on, but I just felt that whatever these people were saying, didn't include my religion and my culture and and my mm. background and and i couldn't fit who i was with what was being said together you know it, it just felt yeah. like there, it's a conversation that i'm not included in so i was wondering yeah. if you had this kind you know, of feeling too yeah yeah it's interesting i mean in a way I, I in a way i feel like i mean i i was i studied in english right and so if you speak the english language you are automatically in i i feel like in a very like uh, intimate and and profound way uh, y- you are inculcated into into the western tradition even the even the concepts the philosophical concepts in english come out very organically of the western philosophical tradition as opposed to uh, non different non western philosophical traditions so i feel in virtue of english also simply the fact that i could speak english I wasn't like so far removed, but you know, there were obviously things, right? So for example, I remember I read um, Descartes and he has, he's a 17th century, I believe a uh, uh, French philosopher. And he wrote a lot about the mind yeah. and the distinction between the mind and the body and also about God. And he has an argument in his uh, book, Meditations on the First Philosophy on um, the existence of God. And I was raised as a Saivite. I was raised as a as a as a as a shiva worshipping or like a hindu but when i read the descartes argument for the existence of god i didn't actually stop to think oh he's talking about a abrahamic god he's talking about really the co- the, the qualities he's ascribing to god really fit much more with within the abrahamic tradition they could be seen much more easily as an argument for the existence of a christian god or an islamic god uh, but like the conceptual, the conceptualization of the divine is very different in in South Asian religion, and so. Um, but I read the argument, and I uh, didn't really have many critical faculties. Like <laughs> I wasn't very critical of what I was reading at the time, and I was like, "Oh, okay, this argument really works. God exists." But then I assumed by God, he was talking about our God, and so I. I kind of misread the text in a way. It took it took some time. It took me going to America um, to understand that, like, okay, this God actually is is different, or it's conceptually yeah. different, and the argument doesn't work for any other kind of uh, framework for the divine. But so I didn't really see it like that. But then also, you know, also a lot of these early philosophers, they weren't white, uh, or they weren't uh, they weren't Western. I mean. I think of Plato and Aristotle as Mediterranean philosophers that became central to what we call the Western tradition, right, right, which right. is more properly the European philosophical tradition. But they were just as central to uh, the uh, Islamic philosophical tradition, for example. And uh, they were certainly culturally the the Greeks of that time a lot closer to to to. Uh, Persians and North Africans than they were to uh, Northern Europeans. True. Or the people we, 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 that are, I guess we, we call white today. So, um, yeah. So, I mean, even, I mean, so even that is, it's not quite true. I mean, certainly like the, like in the time of the Tamil Sangams in the uh, early parts of the first millennium, uh, there was trade and there was uh, intellectual back and forth between South India and and uh and greece on the mediterranean so uh yeah i don't know i it, it didn't really i didn't really think about it like that at the time i think it was only when i went to university to an american university 
in the United States and um, was surrounded by Americans and was studying and writing and re- and talking in English with with these other people that I began to really think that or really understand that oh actually this is not a tradition I can lay lay claim to as easily but when you're young and when you're reading and the and it's just words on a page yeah uh, you i don't know you don't or oh, i didn't and also philosophy is very abstract in a way it's not like reading uh, fiction where you are constantly aware of the manners of speech of the social habits of the um cultural milieu of what you're reading right uh, philosophy tries to abstract from a lot of that and obviously it doesn't these there are always cultural and historical deposits in a philosophical text as well but um but it's a lot it's a lot easier to to be unaware of those things in philosophy than it is in literature what is your what is your relationship to tamil literature like you know all your books are written in english and there's no dialogue i i uh, i do write in tamil um not for publication yet uh, because i'm not comfortable publishing anything in tamil yet but um i actually just was writing a piece on on the relevance of mean of of wittgenstein uh, to the to a post genocide society for um as is the first philosophical uh, like talk or thing or like piece i was i was giving in 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 tamil but i only really started i studied maybe 2 years of tamil when i was a kid and then my education was in english and so it's really been only over the last uh, 10 12 years that i've really made an effort to um learn how to read and write and it basically had to start from scratch i basically had to start from the that's really the tough must be really tough alphabet. i mean it's easy i mean it was easier because i speak the language and i'm fluent in the language but the just learning how to read learning how to write and there's a you know big difference between the vocabulary of speech and the vocabulary of um, of literary production obviously in especially in south asian languages there's quite a big quite a big divide but um yeah it's only i've only really been reading um like uh, reading easily for the last uh, or reading with comfort for the last maybe 3 uh, or 4 or 5 years um i've only been writing at what i would say is like a level of competence like a level of like basic being basically being able to express myself for the last maybe 2 or 3 years but um yeah i think my interest in tamil uh, grew a lot more after my time in my time in in the us when i realized you know also part of the for me part of the joy of reading and writing is this sense of being able to remove myself from the environments i'm in and um and actually english gave me that when i was in in uh sri lanka but obviously english could not give me that because it was a language everybody spoke when i was living in the us where i lived for 11 years and so Tamil began to assume more and more this role of a kind of secret language or a private language in which I could express my my desire to be elsewhere uh and so it also kind of took <clears throat> it also like uh, took on this aspect as time went on in in an interview I read that you I read somewhere that you said that Tamil was a colonized language mm-hmm. can you elaborate on that well i mean there's a sense in which it's true for all uh south asian and uh, a lot of non western languages which is that uh tam i mean tamil has you know it's it's the oldest continually spoken language in the world and it has like a very very rich richest body of of literary production uh uh one of the richest bodies of literary production of any language and um, especially in the classical in the classical area in the time of antiquity and um uh, people don't just i mean poetry doesn't just come out of thin air there are um there has to be a system there are systems of education in place there has to be systems of uh, uh literary production in place there's there have to be patrons there have to be critics uh there have to be stages and spaces and audiences and basically there needs to be a complex institutional apparatus for any kind of sophisticated production in poetry i would say to um uh to be possible and there was obviously because such a literature exists in tamil as it does in many other south asian 
languages. Uh, but over the colonial period, these institutions were um, destroyed. They were uh, made illegal or defunded uh, or the economic and cultural situation became such that they crumbled of their own accord. And so at the end of two or three hundred years of colonization, um, the institutions no longer existed to maintain production at such a high level, literary production. And so in that sense, it's colonized. And in that sense, the, you know, 70 or 80 years of um, so-called independence after, after the departure of the British has not been enough time for those institutions to be rebuilt and for like a really flourishing uh, system. I mean, and that, of course, comes together with, I guess, economic conditions in general. You know, it's difficult to sustain uh, literary production at a high level when, 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 when many people are struggling for food uh, or having to work many, many, many hours a day and don't have time to read and so on and so forth. But and I think that holds for a lot of non-Western languages have gone through this, this process of having their institutions um, taken away from them. But and by institutions, I mean even things like prizes or systems of recognition, you know, this whole Booker thing. There would have been such things, uh, prizes and awards and right. forms of recognition as significant. Uh, and to as encourage famous. it. Yeah, 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 yeah. But um, today, no Tamil, Tamil writer can be, can be compensated uh, or, or, or given adulation the way that an English language writer can. Uh, and it's because of the systems that that exist around those those languages, but um, but it's true doubly for Tamil in Sri Lanka because there's been a series of since um, so-called independence in 1948 there's been a series of um, of kind of anti-Tamil policies of of quotas to to um, uh, reduce the numbers of Tamils going into university acts that were meant to that were intended to uh, delegitimize the official standing of Sri Lanka, in, of, of Tamil in the country. Um, and in that sense, and also in general, like the obstruction of uh, the obstruction of these kinds of systems that could be, um, that, that would be required to sustain, sustain a language and, and its literary production. For example, in 19, uh, I'm forgetting now, but I believe it was, uh, let me look it up. There was a famous, there's a famous library in yeah. Sri Lanka, the Jaffna Library which was burnt to the ground. Yeah. And it contained, it was 1981, and it contained um, thousands of really, really old and ancient palm leaf manuscripts that didn't have, that weren't, didn't have copies and that were destroyed uh, forever when, when, when this building was burnt down. And it was kind of a symbol of pride uh, because also as uh, in the Tamil community, we understand, we understand um, there's a very, there's a real devotion to language. And, and culture uh, well yeah specifically language um uh, like the separatist movements in sri lanka were often and even at the time that there were separatist movements in south india in the davidian movement uh, but also in uh in precursor movements in tamil nadu a lot of political aspirations and ideals were were identified in terms of language like uh we want space for tamil we want a land in which Tamil can be spoken freely, in which Tamil can be spoken loudly. Uh, we want a land in which people can hear Tamil poetry. Um, and the, so a lot of political frustrations and aspirations were, were, were articulated in some way or another through this idea of um, uh, language and giving language space and room and uh, time to, to, grow. To, to, to grow. Yeah. So, um, so I lost track of, of, of what we were talking about, but me too, but it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, when I was in school, you know, every time I would try to write a story or something about myself or my life, I would have to include my culture and my religion. Right. But my audience, my classroom, my teacher were all, you know, were not of the same culture background as me. Yeah. So when you're writing these novels about the war, about these stories of these people, was it tough in the sense that you, because in the book, I find that you, when you were writing it, when I was reading it, you don't really explain the historical, political context of what's going on. You're really yeah. focused on on these personal stories, on these narrowed down stories of these characters and what they're going through. But you kind of leave out 
not too much, but uh, a lot of what's going on and, and what happened. So anybody who's who has no idea what's going on, who's never heard of Sri Lanka, has to kind of do a little research on their own. Yeah. Did you do that? Like, Were you aware of that? Or when you were writing it, did you just not, you know what? Did you not I, have you know, to I, explain yourself? It's a different situation, right? Growing up, growing up in a foreign country or in a country that's foreign to your culture and growing up as a diaspora member than it is growing up in growing up in proximity to to people of your culture your community or your homeland and that was my situation i grew up on the island of sri lanka um i had relatives around me um we couldn't actually access the north it was until i never went to my like ancestral village until i was 20 or 21 but um i have uh i have yeah, I guess that's my frame of reference in a way. And so mm. for me, it would be very boring to explain Sri Lankan history just in the same way that like it would be boring for an American writer to, to I don't know, to talk about uh, kind of basic events in to, to explain like, you know, the Vietnam War yeah. or the civil rights movement. They wouldn't bother to do it. They take it for granted that the audience understands and explains. And I think um, I was my own audience me and my first reader uh, was my sister. She was the person that I'd give all my reading to, my, all my writing to when I, when I, like even today, but when I started writing uh, from the age of 20. And so she had the same frame of reference as me. And I wasn't really interested in other people's frame of reference because I always saw and continue to see writing as something that I do uh, for my own sake and uh, out of my own needs. And, and so, yeah, it never occurred to me and I wouldn't, I wouldn't do it. I mean, the moment I start to do that would be the moment uh, writing becomes uh, about anything about something other than me or where I'm coming from or what I want from it. Right. That's very much, that's very much the kind of uh, attitude I, I have towards writing that it's, it's a personal activity. It's something that I'm doing for myself. Even if now I have apparently people who are reading my work like at a at a at a like a kind of like wider at a wider scale. When I when I read a novel, I mean, you know, back in the day I used to read novels just for fun, but now as I'm getting older, I'm I'm 34 now. And I guess I'm trying to find truth and meaning. And when I read a book, I want some kind of truth from it, you know. And you said you were you were in philosophy. And philosophy has a way of philosophy is made to kind of justify and explain things of, of life's questions. Do you find that when you switch from philosophy to writing, you found some answers to, the, to life's questions that you're looking for? Or did you just have more questions? Um, it's, a, it's a hard question because it's know, a good question. It's, it's your book. You know, I'm I'm, you know, we're I'm, I think we're both around the same age and I just feel that life's reality is kicking in now and we're at this age mm -hmm. where you know the older generation is slowly passing away and you're too old you're too old to be young and you're too young to be old and i read your book and it's about grief and it's about pain and and the reality of life and it's very it's hard to get through because it's really sad and it's really tough and coming from a philosophy background you're you're this kind of rare breed where you're a writer and a philosopher you have this kind of unique background where you where your people have experienced a lot and i don't even know what my question is but i was just wondering have you figured it out <laughs> <laughs> well um or have you have you made peace with the i don't with the with the uncertainties I, yeah, of I life understand. i understand yeah i understand your question i think when 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 one is younger and if one is born into a situation where one has the privilege or the time or the space to think about these things uh, about the future if one is born into a situation where you feel that you have some kind of agency or, or sway over what will happen to you um, that when you're young you you do want to know uh, what life is about or what life should be about or how you should live or how you should organize your time or what you should devote yourself to there's a lot of questions about about life that um, yeah. that you have obviously and 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 this this kind of uh, 
so this 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 longing really to to know what the world is about and what your life can be about this this longing for for answers or solutions in a way and i think that was what that was very much what um drew me to philosophy and it was also what subsequently drew me to literature but as you grow older you slowly begin to see how even little decisions you've made in the past uh come to shape your life you have more and more of a sense of the kind of character you have mm-hmm. that character becomes uh more and more uh stable you've uh if you belong to the to the bourgeois then you've uh, you've um you've had an education in a certain area you have the that education has determined certain kinds of uh, uh vocational futures career futures that you can have uh you maybe find um uh a partner you find a career you find a place that you uh, are happy or can tolerate living in and so these decisions they often made accidentally or they often come into being rather than being chosen but they they slowly kind of add up and the kind of horizon of possibility slowly diminishes as yeah. you get older you have more and more of a sense that if when you were young there was still the possibility that the future could be radically different from the present as you get older that 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 sense diminishes there's a sense that more and more you begin to feel that how i am now is not going to be um so different from from how i'm going to be in the future at least in terms of my my character and my way of seeing things and obviously there are like great upheavals that one can experience uh, later in life too but that sense of possibility disappears i think that's a fairly uh, it's a very I, impactful I mean, thing yeah it is an impactful thing for people who are born with that sense of possibility or born into that sense of possibility and uh, like myself and and so then this idea that you could search through philosophy or through literature for a life that is completely different from the life that you live also begins to diminish you begin to i at least began to seek through literature or philosophy uh more of a stance of acceptance of who i was or the life i live or uh the conditions of of society then then i did when i was younger when i was more interested in in radically altering my relationship to the world it became more about less about transcending the world or liberating myself from the world or from my life than it did about uh accepting my life and accepting the world and uh i mean accepting is a is i use that in a kind of ambivalent sense i don't mean accept it in the sense of making of, peace of making peace necessarily with it but i mean of 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 recognizing it and and seeing the seeing the power that it has over you you said that you went to to the north when you were 21 that was after the war right mhm what yeah, was that what was that experience like because i'm asking because the train in the book it's a big it's a big part of the story where he goes in, onto the train and travels to the north to see for those who don't know the north is where most of the war took place and mm-hmm. what was your experience like when you went to the north and you saw what happened to the land after the war well i was filled with shame that i had lived uh my entire life i mean i was aware intellectually through stories that people would tell and through pictures that i would see but um but it was you know where a small island sri lanka and the northern the north and the east were cut off from the rest of the island for 30 years and yeah and so you had no idea what it was actually like to be in those places what how the villages looked how the how how the landscape looked the the vegetation what it smelled like what people talked like their vocabulary and their expressions um their relationship to land and nature and climate and sea and water and and mountain and um and also their their suffering and the things that they had been through and all the losses they had experienced it was happening right 
next to me and they spoke my language and we were from the same community but i was sundered for all my life and uh, i was living a relatively um a relatively uh, comfortable and happy and privileged uh, and carefree life and uh, to the extent that really to the extent that a tamil person could in in my country i i was living such a life and um, and i felt great shame in the same way that uh, you know uh, you could be living in an apartment uh, for many many years and then suddenly uh, and then uh, notice the absence of your neighbor for a few months and then late learn learn like a, a months later that the neighbor's passed away or the neighbor's died or the neighbor was sick uh and you realize well i was going about my whole life in this apartment while right next door to me there was there were these there were these scenes of suffering and you feel a certain kind of um or maybe maybe a better analogy is when you find out that someone close to you has died uh after a delay you know like uh, that your cousin or your friend uh we're also in the stage of life where people have begun to pass away for um uh, and I mean, this is something that happens uh, if you're lucky as you get older. But um, uh, yeah, learning that somebody has died maybe a day late or two days late and you've continued living your life normally, happily, yeah. doing this and that, um, uh, going for a drink, dancing, meeting people, uh, having nice meals while all the time this other thing had been happening and when you find out late you feel this shame and this sense of inappropriateness at the way you had been conducting yourself while in fact something very different was going on something that if you knew was going on you would you would be responding to very differently it was kind of like that yeah i understand so let's go on to lighter topics <laughs> <laughs> um you know what's your writing process like i'm always curious to know how what's your what's your process to uh, an author and how you write because writing on a piece of blank piece of paper is the most scariest thing ever so mm. how do you what do you do you wake up in the morning and you like have like a certain time set certain music in the background no music uh because i write i try my writing is 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 musical or it tries to be musical i mean by me what i mean by that is it uses it pays a lot of attention to rhythm uh and so some music would interfere with that so actually if i'm writing i do, i actually don't listen to music until i'm done writing for the day so i i so i don't i hardly listen to music in the mornings but um yeah usually there's no set time uh, usually it's uh, late morning afternoon early evening sometimes in the night but i don't have the fear of the blank page because i hardly ever leave i don't let the page be blank wow that's I, I, that's deep <laughs> well i i i think of it more you know in the way that a a sculptor would work already with a mass of clay uh, they would have the clay and then the the sculpture would be um would be made out of that they don't start with a void or a blank and so i i i also like to begin with my clay so i don't i don't begin with a void and my clay is something that i Uh, i i have generally a sense of of what i'm writing about and what i'm interested in and i and i and i simply write often simply write i write around the material in all sorts of ways uh, that come to me and i don't really stop to think very much uh you don't I mean, think process- you just go with the flow you just let the brain no no i do think i think a lot i'm always thinking and so um what i mean to say is that um i don't I don't I don't plan much and I'm specifically saying in response to this problem of the blank page uh I I I eliminate that by I always start I always I always write so that I have material and once I have some basic material whether some of it is good some of it is bad the sentences won't be nice from that I I expand I look at what I have so I make sure that I'll have something first and I won't pay I won't give it too much attention so so i won't be uh, i won't be um a- agonizing over whether whether it's good or bad or whether mm-hmm. it's a, a suitable basis for for a book or a text i just put it i just put it down and then i'll work from that i'll um, 
I'll take certain bits away and certain bits I'll begin to expand on and elaborate on. And I'll go over the text. I go over the text hundreds of times, any text, any chapter, any paragraph, any sentence. And with every single, um, well, you know, there's a couple, there's two ways that you can think about it. There are two natural processes that I sometimes think about it. I uh, think about um, in relation to writing. Um, do you know how a, I actually don't know if this is geologically and geographically accurate, but do you know how, um, uh, how um, a spit forms in the ocean? spit forms no no spit as in a spit is a geological landform it's a it's a it's a it's a kind of projection from the coast of a of a kind of like line of of sand out into the distance but you know the coastline is shaped in different ways no it's it isn't straight no and and um when when waves come in they deposit material right and the way they deposit material is not even they deposit more material in some areas and less material in other areas and it depends on the kind of shape or material or the kind of um, the nature of the coastline at certain points whether 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 the sea will be depositing more or less in a specific area but the point is that there are certain points because of uh, uh, on the coast on the coastline along the beach where uh, where more material will be deposited rather than less because there's something there that uh, slows down the water or something like that and so over the course of 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 months and years and decades, coastlines change their shape by this kind of natural process of, of deposition. Yeah. Um, and I kind of think about every time I go over the text, I, I reread and rewrite the text. I add a little bit to, to certain spots that for some reason slow down my thinking. And I'll do this again and again and again and again until the shape of the coast until the shape of the the sentences and the paragraph can look radically different um of, and it's not something that you know just like the sea is not thinking it's not like i am thinking but i'm slowed down at certain points and i'll add something and the same way i'll take certain things away and for this i think of uh, uh, you know in the in the sahara desert or in the gobi desert you have these landforms that can be that are shaped by the attrition of the wind over thousands of years into yeah. these really strange and beautiful and smoothly polished shapes right uh, alien kind of uh, landscapes and that's just the process of wind uh, and the process of the wind eroding you know the, the little grit uh, the little bits of sand and rock particles that the, that the wind is carrying striking against the rock form uh, and again the wind doesn't think to create these shapes these beautiful shapes but it works with the material. It softer parts of the rock form are chipped away, and the sturdier parts uh, less so. And over time, again, these like really uh, uh, strange and profound landscapes are formed. And so I think of it in that way. I go over the text again and again and again and again. I'll make small changes, small additions, and small subtractions, uh, depending on where I'm meeting resistance or where where the text is slowing me down kind of like the 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 wind or the sea how how do you know you have a story then right how do you know right because you know your last book nothing there's there's not much happening it's really Mm -hmm. more about the the mind and what he's thinking and what he's observing but the story is very simple so how did you how do you know you have a story here and do you first think of the ending first so you know where you're going or do you just write the beginning and then kind of hopefully find your way somewhere i think it depends it depends on the text it depends on the text like with what i'm writing now the novel i'm writing now i don't really know the ending my second novel because there's no real story um there was i knew the ending which was which was going to be relatively um uh unsurprising and relatively uneventful Mm -hmm. but I don't really think about stories. Um, I like stories. I like telling stories. I like listening to stories. Um, I like all kinds of stories, but I don't, stories are not what I go to uh, literature for. I'm much more personally interested in maybe what you could call situations rather than stories. Okay. Uh, an individual in a situation in which something has happened or that there's a certain kind of pressure on them or certain kind of demands on them 
and I'm more interested in exploring the uh, um, the the impact of the situation on the psyche of the character, on their moods, on on the way they perceive things, on uh, uh, their understanding of their relationship to the world. I I take a situation. So in my in this last book of mine, a passage north. Uh, a woman that the main character knows has passed away in yeah. a in a way that looks like it could be suicide and that's how the book starts and all and 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 all that happens is that the main character Krishan takes a train from his uh, home in Colombo and goes to the north and uh, is present at the, attends the funeral um, nothing else happens but it's a situation in which yeah. uh, there is a lot going on yeah in the background but if you say it like that it sounds really simple but there is so much happening and has happened yeah. that it's really it's a really heavy journey yeah yeah and so the situation demands him to be present in a certain kind of way and to pay attention in a certain kind of way and to reflect about certain kinds of things the woman who's died the son she lost in the war her relationship to his grandmother who she took care of for a couple of years his grandmother, her aging process, her slow withdrawal from the world, the friendship between these two women, the war in the background, the uh, genocide that left this woman traumatized, all of these thoughts, uh, all of these reflections, all of these memories kind of come together as he's taking this train train north. And it's not, um, and there's no real story, but there's this situation that is... Yeah that is kind of uh, uh, a vessel for these for these thoughts and images and memories and reflections amazing you know i i your book doesn't really provide me with answers to life's questions but after reading it it gave me peace you know like i like as all good novels do and i always wonder why i get this peace and as i'm talking to you i think it's because you get a certain sense you get the ability to be compassionate and i think compassion being compassionate and developing mm. that provides you with a certain way to have peace with the things around you in a weird way what are you yeah i think i ahead, think that's sorry. true no i think that's true because philosophy um, doesn't provide you i mean as far as i know it doesn't provide you with a sense of compassion but literature does that's right, that's right. yeah there's not much in philosophy that would encourage that kind of thinking about other people yeah literature does literature does that and literature also just gives you know in life there's so much um there's so much things, there's so much that we don't have time to care for. True. There's the suffering of our neighbors or people on the street uh, or relatives or loved ones even that we we see them suffering or we see them struggling and we want to help them. And most of us, most of the time, we do what we can. Uh, but there's so much that we simply can't. We can't afford. We don't have the time to pay attention to other people's suffering and fiction really gives you that it really allows a writer to give as much time as they want to a subject matter to a situation uh, to really pay attention to it to let uh, to dwell in it and it allows the reader to do that also to dwell in a situation to give a situation uh, and the people within that situation the time that they deserve the consideration that they deserve and um, yeah, I think it's one of the really uh, wonderful things about about literature. For somebody who wants to learn more about the history of the Tamil community, do you have any documentaries and books you'd like to recommend? Yes. Well, there's a couple that I refer to in my novel um, that I think give a pretty good. Uh, yeah, there was. A I mean, they're very they're very difficult. They're very difficult. The, well, the first one is not directly mentioned in the in the novel it's it's um co- it's called sri lanka's killing fields uh it's a it's a documentary by uh, a british tv station channel 4 and it's about the last two years of the war and uh and basically the the genocide uh and then there is um there's this there's this other documentary you could watch which you could find on youtube um uh, my daughter, the terrorist, very unfortunately named, I think, but it's actually a very, it's a very, um, it's a very beautiful and moving documentary about two uh, two women in the in the tigers that is talked about at length in in one of the chapters of of the novel too. 
do you have anything you'd like to add in? Do you want to talk about something? Um, no, I think, you know, we covered a, we covered yeah, a, we covered a lot. Yeah. This was great. It was a really thank fascinating. You for, thank you for reading the two books. Oh my God. It was, a, it was no, thank you for writing this. Cause that, those two <laughs> books were honestly, the second book is by far one of my favorite books. I just really enjoyed just uh-huh. the way you dissect life and, and things. It just made me most books, you know, you're waiting for something to happen, but this book, I just really enjoyed staying still Mm. and just understanding things even things i took take granted for i can go on i can go on for a long time about this but we're not gonna waste any more time yeah take care